What a powerful prayer for us this morning to pray that the Lord would speak to us, that he would guide us as we meet together in this place. Let me ask you a question. What if you had a relatively short time to instill in somebody else something that was very, very important? Yesterday, I had that opportunity and experience. Uh, my daughter Heidi is playing soccer, and I was planning to be a spectator. I walked with camping chair in one hand and coffee in the other. The coach of the team said, I'm coaching two teams this year, my daughters, who is on the team with Heidi, and my son, who is a, like a five or a six-year-old, who is on another field. I've got to leave at halftime. You're now my assistant coach. So it didn't take very long for me to learn about the game. I was very, very attentive at listening to all of his questions because I don't know much about soccer. I know a little bit, but I said, just tell me where do I need to put them. And he said, the main thing is make sure that we've got nine players out there. And, you know, if they're close to the right position, that's good. And after that, he said, you're a pastor, aren't you? And I said, yeah. He said, good, pray a lot. So I prayed. <laughs> well, at halftime when he left, the game was nothing to nothing. We come to the end of the game, and we won two goals to nothing. So he comes back, and we had a doubleheader. We had to play another game. He said, I got this now. I said, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. I said, I made some halftime adjustments, and I think we're all right. You can sit down if you need to. No, I didn't tell him that. I welcomed him. I said, come on, come on, coach again. Please, coach. The Apostle Paul spent three weeks. Three Saturdays, in fact, I mean three Sabbaths, excuse me, there in Thessalonica. The, the, the story of his travels is told in Acts 17 and 18. We've been studying the book of First Thessalonians for the past couple of weeks. And as we think about this together for just a moment, uh, just to focus our attentions today on First Thessalonians chapter 3, I, I want you to think about that. What if you only had three weeks to share the message of Christianity with someone else? What if you had just a brief time to instruct them in the ways of Christ? What would you focus on? What would be most important? Well, what would be the things that you would really key in on and say, these things matter? Well, that's what Paul did. It says that he labored there for three weeks. In fact, let me give you a little backdrop. Hopefully, you're turning there. I would encourage you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 3. And while you're turning there, I'll catch you back up to speed. We've talked about this for a couple of weeks. Paul, on his second missionary journey, traveled to Thessalonica. He labored for three Sabbaths. He was there with uh, the, the people in the synagogue. In fact, that was his very first stop. That was his pattern. As you realize and, and maybe recognize, as you look at Paul's work, he would go to the synagogue and he would begin to reason with Jews. And that's what he did in Acts chapter 17. He went to the Jews. He began to talk to them about Christ Jesus. He was saying Jesus is the Messiah. And many God-fearing Greeks and some of the women that were there, the leading women in that area, trusted Christ. And that's how the church was started. But we also know that there were some jealous Jews. There were some that were disgruntled about Paul's teaching and his preaching. And they created a ruckus. There was a riot that happened. And Paul and Timothy uh, and Silas left in the middle of the night and they moved on to Berea. And as they left, he left this young church, this embryonic church. Now, I want everybody to think about this with me. He spent just a very short time with them, but he fell in love with them. He loved them so much. And in fact, we know that because we read the book of 
Thessalonians. As we read 1 Thessalonians, you see a, a pastor's heart for people. He loved them and he was eager to hear about them. In fact, so eager that when he gets to Corinth, he writes back to them. We also know that there was a time in which he was longing to hear about their faith in the midst of persecution, so he sent Timothy. Timothy met up with him. He sent Timothy to get report, and Timothy came back with good report. And his heart was encouraged and built up, but he still longed to be with them. Now, I want to take this a little further in terms of a, of a division of the book. And I want us to see this, and then we'll try to draw it into where we live today and apply it. Hopefully, you'll begin to see the connection and what it means to us here today. But if you look at the first half of the book, it's really his own personal reflections. He's writing and saying how much he loves them. And then he's defending his ministry before them. Chapters 2 and 3, you see that he probably was under some criticism. While he was there, there were people that were saying, Paul is not leading you in the right direction. Paul is just trying to get something from you. And Paul writes to them and he says, you remember how we came to you. We didn't come with eloquent words. We didn't come with flash in the pan, if you will. We didn't come asking for money. We supported ourselves and we came to give to you. And we came in power. We came in the Spirit of God. We came with conviction. We talked about that last week. So Paul comes to this church in that manner, and he defends himself to them, but he has a message for them. And chapters 4, 5, and 6 begin the message. It's sort of like the, the first three chapters are his introduction, and the last three chapters are his sermon. I don't know of too many people that have more longer introductions than I do, but Paul would rival me. I, a lot of times I give long introductions before we get to our text. Well, Paul did that. He gives three chapters worth of an introduction. And the cool part that you'll come to see is that at the end of chapter 3, he ends his introduction before going into his instruction with a prayer. So first you see his heart for them, and now you see kind of looking over his shoulder in his prayer closet, his heart for them expressed in prayer. You've seen what he wanted to tell them directly, and now you see what he wants to tell God about them. I love this. When we look at a pastor's prayer here in 1 Thessalonians 3, we're going to see some, uh, some beautiful things, some dynamic things. So, so recap with me in your heart and your mind so we've got context down. Paul travels to Thessalonica. He plants a church there in a very, very short period of time. He falls in love with the people. He longs to be with them, to encourage them, to build them up. He's, he's anxious about their uh, development and growth in the midst of and in the face of persecution. He defends himself before his critics. And then he comes to this place of praying for them. Now, how does all of this fit in with us? If we were to go back to chapter 1, he started it all by saying, I am so impressed by, encouraged by, built up by your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness and hope. He said, you as a church family or a church family that has built up yourselves in faith in God. And you've shown and demonstrated as a model church love for other people. And in fact, you have been so steadfast in your hope that it just makes my heart swell with pride. Hardy Street, can I tell you that I find myself looking at this church family through that same lens and saying over the course of decades, now literally over a century, this church has been right here 
in the heart of Hattiesburg. And God planted this church here on this location over 60 years ago, but planted this congregation over 100 years ago. And, and over those years, you have worked by faith. You've labored by faith. And you've loved one another. And you continue to do that. And I find myself just raptured at times as your pastors. I pray for you. But I find myself identifying with Paul in, in thinking this way. Paul said, there's more. There's more. Now, I want to make sure that I, I say this uh, loudly. Last week, I picked on our choir a little bit and, and said something about choir robes, and it was in the context of talking about preferences. And what I was saying is, we don't ever want our preferences to take precedent over worship. Would you agree with that? Doesn't matter what they are, whether it's, whether it's the songs that we sing, whether it's the, uh, the, the manner in which we gather. We want to make sure that worship is the preeminent and that there's always room to grow. And so for us today, I want us to see Paul is not speaking to a loveless church. He's speaking to a church that was unbelievably in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was not speaking to a faithless church. This is a church that in three weeks' time scooped up the gospel, took it to heart, and began to wait for Jesus to come. But in his prayer, we see that there was more to come. And until we reach our mission, until we reach the end result of our faith being made sight, until we get to heaven together, one day when we worship in his presence, there's work to do here. And so my focus for us this morning is to look at this pastor's prayer and begin to say, where in our lives can we move forward? Where can our faith be built up? And, and I, I jokingly said this week as I was talking to some pastor friends, they said, well, how's it going? And I said, well, it's good. And they said, how are you enjoying your first year of being a, a shepherd there? And I said, well, I'm trying to lead the sheep and I'm trying to feed the sheep and, and one of them. Uh, whom you know, he, is, he was on staff here at one time in the past, Ryan Whitley. He said, have you sheared the sheep yet? And I said, no, 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 that'll come every way. I said, well, maybe a little bit. But my job and my desire is not to shear the sheep every week. My, de my desire is to lead you and to feed you and to encourage you so that your faith will be built up. And so today I pray that we would come to a place of great encouragement listening to Paul's prayer. This is the prayer of a pastor. This is the prayer of a man who loved his people. And I want, I pray that we would echo this prayer as we think about the vision we've cast and we think about the, the desire for our church to be a disciple-making church among the neighbors, the nations, and the next generation, then we would begin to see this kind of heart in our church. Look with me, if you will, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to pray together, and then very simply, we're going to walk through Paul's prayer. And as we walk through Paul's prayer, I think we'll find great encouragement. Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for our time together. I pray that you would speak to us as we have sung in prayer and asking you to speak. And as we have read your word and you have spoken to us through it, now illuminate it to us through your Holy Spirit. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Now, some of you say, well, this is more like a wish than a prayer, Brother Scott. He says, may this happen. It's interesting that he prays in third person. He, he prays and he says, may God direct our way to you. May God send us to you. Have you ever thought about how you pray that? Maybe if you write somebody a card. Have you ever written on a card, may God bless you? May God watch over you? May God give you peace during this time? Certainly we have. And the beauty of this kind of praying is that it really sends it two different directions. He wanted them to know, this is my desire for you. And he wanted God to know, this is my desire for them. And so it's a common thing. In a lot of churches, they pray that way at the end of a service. It's like a benediction. A benediction. May God bless and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. We, we think in those terms. Well, Paul prays in those terms, in that construct here. And it's pretty interesting to see. As he says, may, he, he says, may God direct our path to you. As I think about his prayer starting that way, it, it really is what he wants them um, to, to be, and he wants desperately to come back to them and to help them. I, I do think it's interesting, too, that we note who he prays to. What does he pray? To God our Father himself and Jesus our Lord. If we were to take this apart in the original language and look at it, the word himself is given a, a prominent place. It's kind of strange. That's a singular pronoun, and the verb is singular. But what he addresses, or who he addresses, is God the Father and Jesus our Lord. If we arranged it in the construct of the original language, it would say, may he himself, God the Father and Jesus our Lord, direct our way to you. It makes sense theologically. Why? Because God, our Father, and Jesus, our Lord, are one. We understand very clearly from Scripture that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one, are the triune God, the one true and living God. And he prays uh, before their hearing to God in that way. And when he does, he is saying to them very, very significantly, you need to hear this. Sometimes we look at Jesus and we say, well, he's approachable because he became a man and he understands. And God the Father is somehow in his sovereignty unreachable. And now he turns this to help us to see God as Father and Jesus as Lord. And so he, it really is juxtaposed in some ways and it shows the, and demonstrates something pretty amazing. That God, our Father, and Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God. And as we look at our, the one God that we serve, as we look at the one true God, God the Father comes down to us, revealing himself as a Father. He loves us with a tenderness. He loves us with a compassion. And he loves us with uh, so great a love that he would send his Son. And now we see in Paul's prayer that Jesus is called Lord. Now we know that Jesus Christ is Lord, but oftentimes we look at Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, as being the one that's accessible. Here there's this picture of ruling and reigning, Jesus the Lord. And so he prays and he says, God our Father, Jesus our Lord, we are asking of you on behalf of them these what I would take the time, why would I take all the time to, to just look at the address of his prayer? Maybe, just maybe, you and I need to begin to consider God's activity in our prayers. We pray to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit of God. 
maybe tonight as we gather, it's not a magical formula, it's just a recognition of who God is, that our faith would be placed in the proper uh, seated uh, focus, that our, our focus would be, oh God, our Father, we know that you have sent Jesus, your Son. You, we know that we, because of him being tempted in all ways as we have been tempted, we know that he is able to meet us at every point of need. And because of that, and because of his leading and sending the Holy Spirit to us, we have power in our prayers because we have the authority of God with us. And Paul, in their absence, longing to be with them, prayed for them. Folks, why would this matter to you this morning? I hope that you'll see this. Maybe you've got a wayward son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter. Maybe you've got someone that is estranged from you in your life. But God knows that condition and he can meet that need. God is powerful. And even in our absence, we can trust God's sovereignty over their lives. And Paul is praying for this church that he loves so much. And he's saying, oh God, that you would direct me back to them. And we could begin to see their faith built up. We'll come to that in a moment. But as he prays to God, what does he pray? The first thing, to get back to them. He, he had in chapter 2 been thwarted. Do you remember that? We talked a little bit about it last week. I longed to come back to you, but I was stopped. Satan stopped him from coming. And so he prayed, and he just simply said, the power of God is able to meet their needs. Now, I want to put the whole of this sermon in one sentence, if we can, and I want you to fill it in in your notes, and this will be the springboard for the rest of what we say. Paul's desire was this. This is the prayer of this pastor for his people, that they would grow in faith and love so that their lives would abound in holiness and hope. Let me say that again. His desire for them was that they would grow in faith and in love so that their lives would abound in holiness and hope. And that's God's desire for you. And that's my desire for you. If I could pray anything for our church, and as I pray for our church, as our staff prays for our church, I find myself on my knees saying, Lord, may their faith increase. May you grow them in faith. May they trust you with a rock-solid trust. May they be established and built up and continue to grow in their faith. Why? Because faith begins to move forward in other areas of life, like love and holiness and hope. In fact, the Bible says without faith, it is impossible to do what? To please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, I want to make sure you hear this. I think sometimes we have great misgivings about faith. We think of faith as some kind of, of commodity, and if we can get enough of it, then God will hear our prayers. We need to have more faith. We need greater faith, bigger faith, more. We need to believe harder. I don't believe that at all. I believe faith is a simple matter of this. You either believe or you don't. But it's the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith. We need to develop not a great faith in God, but a faith in a great God. Let me say that again. We don't need to develop great faith in God. We need to develop faith in a great God. 
The Bible talks about mustard seed faith. It says if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved from here to there, and it will be moved. It's not about the size of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. And let me say it this way. It's very important for us to understand very clearly. What does growing faith look like? I'm going to ask and answer a couple of questions. When we think about growing faith, why would we want to grow faith? Well, you need to understand what it looks like. Faith is the ability, listen church, faith is the ability to trust the truth. Let the weight of those words fall. Faith is the ability to trust truth. It's not about growing faith in degrees of belief. You either believe or you don't. It's not about believing harder. It's not about believing with more strength. It's not about working it up. You see, other religious systems do that. It's if I can muster in some way enough faith or, or ecstatic uh, hope, then somehow God will be appeased. And it's not about that at all. It's about standing on truth. It's coming to the place where I say, I cannot be saved apart from Jesus Christ. Why? Because the truth of the word says so. But I plant my feet squarely on that truth, and I trust that truth. That's faith. Faith is the ability to trust the truth. Now, hear this, church family. Every sin that you or I ever commit ultimately is rooted, is grounded in unbelief. When I sin, I am saying, God, I don't believe you either meant that, or I'm just simply not going to trust that that's true. Every sin that we commit is rooted at some level in unbelief. We are not trusting the truth. We are saying, I know better than God. And here Paul saying to them, I long to come back to you, that God would direct my way back to you so that you may grow. Now, it, you say, well, I'm reading and it says grow in love. If you backed up to verse 10, he has just said, we want to come to you and help build up that which is lacking in your faith. He knew that if they could trust the Lord with an expansion of their knowledge of Him and their comprehension of truth, then they could trust truth all the more. So think about this. What does that mean? My role is as your pastor. If faith is the ability to trust in the truth, my job is to help build your comprehension, your knowledge, your understanding of the truth of the Word of God. That's why we have Sunday school classes. That's why in the coming months, you need to hear this. We're going to focus on discipleship like never before. This church has, has had a great history of discipleship and sending. But the reality is we need to refine that, retune that, come back to it. For the past several months, we've been talking about prayer and evangelism. And now we begin to talk about discipleship and missions that our lives would be based in truth, growing in truth, so that our faith is built up. Here's what I mean by that. What does growing faith look like? If faith is the ability to trust in the truth, then the only way that you can have the truth in your life uh, to, to, that would build faith is that you would grow in it, that you would actually know the truth. You can't trust it if you don't know it. Would you agree with that? When, when I know the truth of the Word of God, then I can trust it. You see, there are too many people that have just stopped. They've stalled out at a level. They just come and they hear sermons and, and don't open their Bible and they've never been discipled. 
I find this time and time again in dialoguing with people that have been a part of churches for a long time. They say, no one ever sat down with me and helped me to walk with Christ. And if you and I would take seriously the call of discipleship to teach people to obey Jesus, then that story would be fewer and farther between. That we would sit down in small groups, one-on-one, one-on-two, one-on-three. We would begin to develop discipleship strategy. And I want to tell you, it's coming. We want to do this, not as some program, but just to simply say, we're going to make this a focus. I I don't know that I've had more excitement ever in our church over any message that I've ever preached by, but this last Wednesday. We we spent a little time thinking about and talking about heaven on on midday and at uh, the evening service. And as we did, people said, let's do that on Sunday morning. Let's talk about heaven. And I said, we'll talk about heaven on Wednesdays. We're going to continue to do that. And that's fun to talk about, but we need to talk about life here on earth. We need to talk about the here and now, not the by and by. We have hope in the by and by, but we've got work to do right now. And part of it is to know the truth. I'll tell you this, the more I know about God, the more I learn of God, the more I love Him. The more I learn of him, the more I learn he is trustworthy. Now, how can I trust in the truth if I don't know the truth? Sometimes we try to cross our fingers and put our faith in a person and say, well, I I wish that they would be more trustworthy. (coughs) But they demonstrate in some way that they're not. You see, the idea that God would show himself trustworthy over and over and over again. He would reveal himself as faithful. They say, well, I'd like to believe that. And then you cry out to him in a time of need, and he demonstrates his power and his trustworthiness there, and now your faith is built up. You see, the more you know of the truth, the bigger the base is that you can uh, attach or or set down your faith upon. Does that make sense? If, If trusting God is all about truth, then our comprehension of the truth expands our faith is built up it's a bigger foundation let's move forward let's continue to think about this so what what is this idea that Paul is trying to say he's saying I want to come back to you and help you grow in your knowledge and your comprehension of the word of God of truth to trust the truth you have to know the truth if I'm going to live by faith in God I have to know him the more I need to the more I know him the more I believe now here's the idea It's not about blind faith. Sometimes we talk about blind faith, but faith is revealed in Jesus. Stepping out blindly, foolish. Stepping out on truth gives confidence. Standing on truth. You know, there's a reality that some people say, well, I was sincere about my faith. If faith that is just blind and sincere is the ultimate measure, then I would say anything goes. We don't need to come back to church anymore. Would you agree with that? Here's what I mean. Somebody can be sincerely wrong. Do you agree? Let me talk to my Nepali friends for a minute. Namaste. Good morning. Several years ago, I was at Kumju, and I was talking to a man. It's a little village on the way to Mount Everest, and there... I was talking to one of the porters, and I said to him, which way to Mount Everest? And he said, well, that way. Everybody knew it's that way. And I said, no, I want to go that way. I think Mount Everest is that way. He looked at me like I was crazy. He said, everybody knows it's that way. I said, but I want to go that way. I sincerely believe it's that way. 
And it dawned on him that there are differing opinions and those opinions matter. And what I'm saying to you is the Apostle Paul was writing to a church that was fighting with people vying for their attention and their beliefs and he had reasoned with them, Jesus is the way. And for you and for me today, we need to understand that building our faith is not stepping out blindly, but it's trusting truth. And if you don't know the truth, you can't trust the truth. So what I would say is, as a church family, we better step up our game when it comes to discipleship. Knowledge in the Word of God, studying the Word of God, understanding the Word of God, comprehending the Word of God. And that's not shearing the sheep and saying you ought to, it's saying we're going to. We will equip you to do that. We will put tools in your hand. We will work together to build you up because my heart is like the Apostle Paul's heart. He longed for them to grow. And my longing is to help you grow. And I know that's the longing of our staff. Well, let's move on just a little farther. We started out with the idea of trusting the truth. And then we said you have to know it. But thirdly, I want you to see knowing the truth should lead to applying the truth. Now, what happens when we apply truth to our lives? Some people that I run into are struggling financially, relationally. I have people that come into my office here at the church, and I have people that I run into in, in, in coffee shops around town and different places, just strike up conversations, and people are, are looking for something to hang their life on. And, and they're not applying truth to their life. You know, as I was preaching not long ago through the fruit of the Spirit, I began to think this is the life that people would pay big bucks to get. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Those, those kinds of things people are, are just spending billions to get their hands on. And it's elusive apart from truth. But when we apply truth, why is it, Pastor, that I just can't seem to get traction I'm, try, I'm coming to church, I tithe, I go to Sunday school. Why is it that I just don't feel like I'm moving any farther along? And I begin to look at their lives and, and I begin to ask some simple questions. Are you obeying everything that Jesus has commanded you to do? Are you walking in His truth? Are you abiding in Christ? And, and what they're telling me is I'm being a religious Christian, not a follower of Jesus. We need to get away from religiosity and we just need to simply follow Jesus. We need to know the word. We need to walk in the word. We need to disciple and share with others. And as we do that, all of a sudden, those are the Christians that I know who are flourishing. Charles, Charles Spurgeon was the one that first said, if you find someone whose Bible is falling apart, their life probably isn't. Adrian Rogers said it this way, if there's dust on the Bible, there's probably dirt in your life. We throw them on the dashboard and we leave and we come back a week later and we never spend time knowing the truth, growing in our comprehension of the truth. How can we expect to develop faith? But when we apply it, let's don't go negative, let's go positive on this thing. When we apply the Word of God to our lives, all of a sudden, what happens? Number one, we have a deepening knowledge of the Word of God. And that in and of itself ought to be a blessing to us. I find myself that my, myself at times just overwhelmed with the things that I read in Scripture. God illuminates in the morning the Word of God to me. And, and when I study it, that confidence in the Word of God leads me, leads me to the path of discipleship. Because I want to share it with somebody else. 
When I find people that aren't sharing with anybody else, I usually can deduce they're not spending time with God themselves. Because I've just found that it's too good to keep to myself. When I get in the Word and I go, Lord, this is for me, thank you. It also leads to greater confidence in God. I can stand assured that God is going to meet my every need in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, I want you to make sure you see this. Our time is running close to the end. It leads to a higher trust in the sovereignty of God. Pastor, what do you mean by that? When I have a greater knowledge of the Word of God, a greater confidence in the character of God, I ultimately come to a place with a higher trust in the sovereignty of God. You see, it's easy to get blinded to the truth when life happens. When life comes my way and, and a diagnosis from the doctor or a financial downturn or a relational issue, all of a sudden I begin to doubt the character of God. And that's unbelief because Satan wants you to doubt the character of God. Is God trustworthy? This is audience participation time. Is God trustworthy? Absolutely. Is, is he faithful? Yes. Is he true to his word? Is he true to his promises? Will he ever leave you? I just want to make sure you can say something besides yes. Will he ever forsake you? Has he promised an inheritance kept in Christ in heaven for you? Does he have a job for you to do? Yes, and when we lose sight of any of that, when life happens and hardship comes, we lose sight somehow that God's not in control anymore. What if, and you fill in the blank, doesn't matter which side, what if this person becomes president? It doesn't matter who's president. God's on his throne. And I'm going to live. Am I faithful to this country? You better believe it. I love this nation. However, I don't care who goes in the White House. I need to be a responsible citizen and think through and vote and do all that I can. But I want, to, I want you to say, hear this. I'm not going to lose my faith. My faith will not be shaken if the person that I think needs to go in the White House doesn't go in the White House. Why? Because Jesus is still on his throne. And when we lose sight of the fact that God gives us greater faith by expanding our comprehension of the Word of God. That's why Paul wanted to go back. He said, if I go back, I can teach them truth. And they'll take that truth, and when error comes, they can combat it. When their feelings come, they can combat that. There are a lot of believers today that are living in functional error, and they're listening to their feelings. I want to tell you, don't base your walk daily on your feelings. Base it on the Word of God. And then when your feelings come that seem to in some way betray your faith, you can say, that's not truth, this is the truth. And you stand on it and your faith is increased. Well, let's keep going just a little farther. The second question is this, what does growing faith produce? We ask, what does it look like? It looks like a confidence in and an expanding comprehension of the Word of God. What does growing faith produce? Love and purity. Love and purity. We're still in our text. Look with me again, if you will, in verse 13. Actually, let's do 12 and 13. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. You see, it's a developmental love. 
When, when we build up in faith, we trust God, we start loving people in a different way. We don't have a sense of vengeance toward those that wrong us. We just begin to say, Jesus forgave me of a lot and I can love a whole lot of people. But it starts with love for the Lord and then love for other believers and then love for the lost. And church family, I want you to hear this. I'm not just talking about the church at Thessalonica now. I'm talking about our church. As we grow together in the word of God, we will have a faith that is built up and that growing faith will begin to exude in our lives love and purity. There won't be a selfishness. Go back to what I said about preferences. None of us will will say, I need to have my way. You see, selfless love goes against selfishness. Selfishness is often prideful. And so when we love, we are tackling attacking the, the sin of pride. Selfless love, giving love, is the opposite of selfless or, or self-filled lust. So the, the sins of pride and lust are attacked when our faith is built up and our love grows. It leads us to purity. We live our lives in a sense of purity, and it's love and ultimately hope. I didn't put that in your notes, but really it sums it up in this word hope. I've told you before that my absolute favorite word in all of Scripture, besides the word Jesus, secondly, redemption, I love the the word that we're redeemed, is hope. Hope is the difference between Christians and non-Christians. Hope is the difference between believers in Christ and all the rest of the world. We live with hope. When we grieve, we grieve how? With hope. When we struggle, we struggle how? With hope. When we find ourselves in in a place of, of loneliness and isolation, we live in that place in truth, never isolated or alone because He'll never leave us, but we live with hope that we'll be restored in that fellowship. I have to just tell you, as your pastor, I spent a lot of time reading chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians weeping because I thought of the goodness of this church. Paul was not writing to a faithless, loveless church. And I'm not preaching to a faithless, loveless church. I'm preaching to a group of people that have love for one another, that have love for the Lord, but there's so much. He wants us to grow. Amen. He wants us to grow in our faith. He wants us to grow in our love. He wants us to grow in numbers. He wants us to grow. And as we grow, as we are built up, He will establish in our hearts a sense of holiness that is blameless. I love that. It's unblameable if you're His. Let's pray together. And as we pray, every head bowed, every eye closed, I want you to hear these words. There are no perfect churches. This was considered a model church, but it wasn't perfect. If you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because it will no longer be perfect. This morning, I believe there are some people here today that need to unite themselves with our church family. More than that, I believe there are some people here today who have never trusted in truth. They've trusted in their religious works and ability, and you simply need to say, I come to Jesus today to be saved. I want my life to be the life of a follower of Jesus. We have encouragers that will help you to do that. We have encouragers that would love to share with you the truth of God's word, what it means to be saved.
And if you'd like to join a church, they can help you with that decision too. We're going to sing a, a hymn of response, but I'm going to pray for us first. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Just as a testimony of the love of God that he has placed in your heart and the salvation that he has given to you. If you are saved today, if you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, repented of your sin, and you will spend eternity in heaven, would you just simply and quietly raise your hand as a testimony before the Lord? Thank you. You can put them down. Today, if you would say, I'm not sure, or you would say, I know, I am sure, I've not trusted Jesus, but I want to be saved this day. I want to spend eternity with God in heaven. Would you be willing just quietly, nobody's looking around, to raise your hand and say, I want to be saved. I want to trust Jesus. If that's the need of your life, let me encourage you when we begin to sing, come and take one of these encouragers by the hand. They would love to share with you. Father, I pray that you would have your will and your way during this time. In Jesus' name, amen.